0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Schaefer's Market Mashup. I'm a man of my word, as I have said numerous times, and I've brought two more esteemed guests with me. Uh, today, I'm joined by Graham Day, Vice President of Product and Research for Innovator ETFs, and Sumit Roy, ETF analyst for ETF.com. Gentlemen, welcome.
1: Thanks for having us, Patrick. Great to be here.
0: Awesome. Good to hear you guys might be my first guests that aren't from Chicago or currently living in Chicago because usually I've got SIBO guests. Are you the first non-Chicago people here?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm in San Francisco all the way out on the West Coast, um, so you know, quite a ways away from Chicago. Wow. Yeah, Patrick. Patrick, I'm actually
2: uh, in kind of in your backyard. We're uh, in Wheaton, Illinois, so just about a 40-minute train ride outside of the city, so... We'll say we're not in Chicago, if that, if that helps
0: you out. Oh, no, that's I'm I'm in Cincinnati right now. Really don't like that wheat in news um, in Division three soccer. Uh, so it so stings a little bit there. But you know what? I won't hold it against you. So today we're going to talk about ETFs uh, in the trends and trades around them. Uh, Exchange Traded Fund, which is what it stands for, they are growing in popularity at a rapid rate. Uh, and SIBO Global Markets is the listing exchange for more than 450 exchange-traded products from over 55 unique issuers globally. Uh, since 2014, SIBO's listings business has grown to capture approximately 30% of all US-listed ETPs. Graham, I know your Innovator ETFs is a SIBO-listed issuer. You guys work on kind of like the next wave of innovation and specialize in defined outcome ETFs. Samit, I know you're like the the go-to for the news analysis and education about ETFs, both online and in print. Um, So in other words, I've got the two experts you need for this. Um, So let's dive into it. Uh, My first question really is, why are ETFs continuing to grow in popularity, especially in 2020? Uh, Graham, why don't you take that first?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, Patrick. And, um, you know, from our vantage point, we feel ETFs continue to um, ex- grow at really an exponential rate in 2020 for the same reasons that they've been growing for the better part of the, the last uh, two decades. And it's really simplicity. Uh, people know what they're getting with ETFs. But the benefits of the ETF are are well known and I think continue to uh, – be pervasive in the investment community, tax efficiency, lower cost, uh, ease of access. I would think that might be one of the bigger reasons. Accessing a product on the exchange, you can buy and sell just like any stock. Uh, Those are things that uh, people want and need for their investments today. And the ETF really cuts through a lot of the weeds of of investing. And we feel like it's the best way to, in, in many asset classes, access the
0: markets uh, today. Sameed? Yeah, I
1: mean, Graham hit on all of the key selling points, the major ones. I mean, the tax efficiency, the low cost, the transparency, the intraday trading. Those are all super, super attractive for investors. Another important one I'd point out is just the sheer scope of ETFs. There's so many ETFs out there, 2300 plus, a vast number of strategies, anything you want, and that's helped fuel this huge growth in the market as well. You have everything from stock ETFs to volatility ETFs to hedge fund ETFs, even gold ETFs out there. So there really is something for everyone, including both retail investors and institutional investors. Now, a lot of ETF success has come at the expense of mutual funds. I think it's worth pointing that out. And that's something that continues in 2020. So far this year, we've had about $350 billion of inflows for U.S. listed ETFs. That's the second largest amount ever in any year. And then at the same time, we've seen outflows from mutual funds of more than $300 billion. So that's a gap of $650 billion or so in less than a year. And which, according to Morningstar, is the largest disparity between ETFs and mutual fund flows since 1993. But aside from that migration away from mutual funds and into ETFs, which has been going on for quite a while now, there are a couple more recent catalysts that are driving the inflows. One is the low interest rate environment. We have rates near zero, as many people are aware. And so investors are stretching for yield and stretching for returns to meet their uh, savings and investment objectives. You can't simply stop your money in a bank account uh, or a CD anymore and hope to make a decent return. So a lot of individual investors are shifting into bonds, into equities, and even some alternative strategies that you find in ETFs. And then another factor driving individual investors into ETFs is the pandemic itself. Um, I mean, it may sound like a silly thing, but all this time that people have been sitting at home has fueled a lot of interest in the financial markets, including ETFs. We've seen trading in the market become kind of like a form of entertainment for some of the younger generations who use platforms like Robinhood uh, and other low-cost brokerages. And so they're using ETFs to move in and out of the markets.
0: Yeah, a a couple of things come to mind through both your explanations. One is is the word streamlined, uh, where it basically takes out all the fluff of a a product and, and, and offers you really the kind of flexibility that you want. And then it was almost like boredom, really, that that brought investors into this, I think these products are so unique that it's not really going to fade once the pandemic is cleared up and, and we're out of this period. Kind of on that note, are there any other recent market trends in listed tradable products in trading strategies? Grandma, I'll let you take that one first.
2: Yeah, I think I think there definitely are. And I would probably echo what Sumit was saying about this the movement that continues from active to passive, uh, particularly in the equity markets. I think it's uh, probably maybe 10 years uh, in a row of outflows from from uh, mutual funds, oh, wow. uh, equity exposures into ETFs. And I think that that is going to continue into the future. There's really no reason to think that active is going to make a, a comeback in terms of its ability to garner flows, but maybe even more importantly, deliver any relevant amount of outperformance uh, relative to an index. But I think another thing that we're seeing in the markets is a, sh- a shift from traditional size and style investing, sector investing, to more thematic investing. And what I mean by that is, for a long times, people uh, would maybe look at the various GICs sectors, energy, technology, healthcare, industrials, mm-hmm. uh, and that's really how they would rotate... Uh, their exposure within the market, or maybe they're moving from large value to, to large growth. And I think what we've seen in the ETF structure has uh, really proliferated this idea is investing in themes and really feeling that themes are, are the new sectors. And so, whether that's uh, 5G or uh, junior biotechnology, uh, junior internet uh, stocks, I think we're seeing a lot of that. Coming to fruition through the ETF space, and so I think it's just an evolution where a lot of times people think of thematic as uh, very niche ideas, and they're never going to make up a large portion of investors' portfolios. But I think the thinking has evolved, evolved to where more people are saying, "Look, I'm moving away from a traditional sector-based investment style or size and style, and I'm moving more towards looking at more from a, a thematic approach." Uh, than than anything else, so I think I think those are probably two of the things that I would highlight uh, for for trends that we're seeing.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have to back up exactly what Graham's saying, and this movement from sectors to thematic ETFs really can't be understated. Just how significant that is, and I think a reason why it's happening is that. Investors and people in people in general—they really like stories and themes are a great, well, great way to tell a story in just one word or just a few words. And things that are intuitive to understand, like certain futuristic technology themes, those tend to do very well because they're very easy to explain. You have a lot of next-generation tech ETFs. Graham mentioned some of them that have really caught the imagination of investors and have attracted billions of dollars of inflows. So we have funds that track themes like robotics, artificial intelligence, Mm e-commerce, gaming. People understand those ideas and these ETFs have done really well, not just in terms of popularity, but also in terms of performance, especially with the pandemic acting as a tailwind for a lot of these funds. So when you see some of these funds up 50, 60, 90, 100%, that adds interest to them as well. And it's not just those high flying technology themes that are doing really well. We're also seeing interest in something like Jets, which is the airline fund, uh, and it's attracted hundreds of millions of dollars this year. Um, and it's simply because investors know that industry. They know the airline industry, they know the companies in it, and they know it's struggled this year, but they think it could be a rebound play for the coming months or the coming years. So they've reached for this straightforward thematic fund to make that bet. So when an ETF can tell a simple, straightforward story, investors love that.
0: You know, I I love, love, love the concept of the thematic because coming from someone without a financial background in a liberal arts education, I think it's so much easier, like you said, for someone new to the game to grasp it. Uh, and for example, we at Schaefer's wrote an article about a month ago talking about the correlation between jets and I think it was the financial XLF ETF so the 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 banking one and it was so easy just to plot and pinpoint when you when you make break it down from banks to airlines and I think that is incredibly intriguing to these new droves of investors that are coming in to back up for a second I mentioned it earlier Graham, talk to me about defined outcome ETFs.
1: Yeah, I'd be
2: happy to, Patrick. And and maybe um, for those that aren't aware of of what a defined outcome ETF is, um, really very simple, it provides beta exposure to a well-known index like the S&P 500. And in exchange for uh, capping upside appreciation over a one-year period, we provide a known built-in buffer of 915 or 30%. And you know, we think that that's incredibly valuable for many investors today. I think 2020 has highlighted uh, really the need for people to reevaluate their ability to take risk in the market when the, the stock market sold off uh, over 30% here in 2020, many people were I had to wake up and say, can I take on this type of risk? And and what if the market correction had lasted even longer instead of uh, rebounding significantly? And that's really the power of the defined outcome ETF is that you can buy it and know exactly how much upside you have relative to, say, the the S&P 500, as well as how much downside buffer I have against losses. And the, uh, the concept of find outcome investing isn't new, uh, to the, or it's new to the ETF world, but it's been around for decades in other, uh, wrappers, other bank, whether it's through banks or insurance companies. But the ETF, wrapper uh, is just another way to deliver these types of payoffs. But we think that the benefits that they provide investors, uh, are significant. Through the ETF wrapper, there's liquidity, there's daily transparency, there's tax efficiency, there's no credit risk. And before these ETFs, there really hadn't been a way to be able to own the market with a level of protection in place uh, prior to investing. And we think that that's game-changing for a lot of those that uh, we talked about thematic investing. At the end of the day, thematic investing is never going to make up the large portion of a client's portfolio. Uh, most people are owning a healthy mix of, of stocks and, and bonds. Uh, but as you look at maybe the clientele of a, uh, or looking at retirees or pre-retirees, their risk tolerance is is lowering, and they may be looking at the stock market today and saying, "Gosh, should I be invested in in stocks or?" Uh, that are at all-time equity valuation levels, or what about bonds? Gosh, they're not yielding anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, The defined outcome ETFs are a happy medium for a lot of those investors because they can stay invested in the market. They can own the S&P 500, but they can have a known built-in buffer against losses. And so it's that peace of mind for a lot of uh, more conservative clients that can keep them invested as opposed to saying, you know what? Maybe I just need to put more money on the sidelines. And with rates at zero, you're not earning anything on that, as Sumit pointed out. So the Fed is telling you, you have to take risk if you mm-hmm. want to make money. But these ETFs are a, a solution for people that say, like, I understand I need to take risk, but I want to know uh, what I'm getting before I invest. And that's exactly what the defined outcome ETFs
0: provide. For fear of, of dating myself and sounding like a millennial, it essentially eliminates like the fear of missing out, really, because even you know the most conservative people can can dip their toe in. How are options utilized with the defined outcome ETF? Is is there a difference when compared with the other options type that's applicable to us at Schaefer's here, of course?
2: Yeah, I, so we use flex options to construct these ETFs, and and a lot of times people can think options that sounds complicated. Not sure if I really want to go down that path, but in reality, these are amongst the most simple ETFs that we've, we've ever built and they hold a basket of options that are fixed for a one year outcome period. We don't do anything for that one year outcome period. We're not buying and selling options. We buy a basket that provides the defined outcome over the one year period.
0: Okay.
2: And then only at the end of the outcome period, do we change the basket and we'll, we'll rebalance into a new one year outcome period by a fresh basket of options that will give you a new upside cap to the market as well as a fresh downside buffer. But the biggest difference of our ETFs, and really the first time ever in a 40-act fund is this defined outcome. Mm-hmm. Options have been used in 40-act vehicles for decades, but they've never given an investor an ability to achieve a defined outcome. Again, meaning I can buy it today and know that if the S&P goes up 10%, I'm going to match the returns of the S&P up 10%, 10%, one for one. Mm If the S&P goes up 20%, maybe I'm going to be capped out at 12%. So, that's where I'm giving up some of my uncapped exposure uh, for a known buffer. And if the market drops 5%, I'm going to be buffered. If it drops 15%, if I have a 15% buffer, I will not participate in any of those losses. And if the market drops 30%, I know that uh, I will only participate in the last 15%. And so, again, it's, it's knowing before you invest, that's the, what makes these defined outcome ETFs uh, so game-changing.
0: Yeah, it, it, it sounds almost too good to be true at this point. Um, you mentioned at, you know, a couple of times the risk management involved with ETFs. Sumit, can you elaborate on the benefits and the advantages that they have when it comes to risk management?
1: Yeah, the the benefits come back to what I talked about earlier, and that is just the sheer scope of the ETF market gives investors the ability to buy so many different strategies. You can mold your portfolio to fit your risk tolerance easily. If you want to diversify, you can diversify across asset classes, across sectors, across geographies. You can overweight and underweight industries. On the fixed income side, you can raise or lower the duration of your portfolio by buying different ETFs. You can buy uncorrelated assets like gold and fixed futures, and like Graham was saying, you can buy these defined outcome ETFs, which are just fantastic instruments for hedging your downside risk while maintaining a lot of that upside potential. If you look at what we saw earlier this year when the S and P five hundred dropped thirty percent plus in a matter of weeks, the defined outcome ETF only lost a fraction of that amount. Wow! And then when the yeah, and then when the S and P five hundred rebounded. The defined outcome ETFs captured most of that upside, if not all of that upside. So that kind of risk-reward profile is very compelling for some investors who are more risk-averse.
0: Yeah, and, and speaking of risk-adverse, we are approaching, less than two weeks away, the monumental volatility you know event that is the U.S. presidential election. What could some possible outcomes be? With ETFs in regards to in general, whatever happens with the election. Yeah, I think,
2: um, it's, it's a great question. And maybe to even borrow from Sumit, uh, he had mentioned earlier, there, there's really an ETF for, for everything. And so whether you think the an election could impact things like clean energy, uh, for if, if a Biden wins or, uh, if you want to play oil, uh, there's, there are ETFs to give you that exposure. And if you're looking to, to maybe take some risk off the table leading, uh, up to and through the election, again, that's, uh, one of the reasons areas where we see our defined outcome ETFs being used, uh, because a lot of times you see these strategies that come to market with, uh, risk management uh, being touted as their selling points. But the problem is they, they work until they don't. And, uh, you know, I'll pick on something that we, marketed at a previous firm, low volatility. Low volatility historically has given you a low beta to the market in periods of, of sell-offs, mm-hmm. a beta of around 0.5, 0.6. But if you look at 2020, you actually saw low vol, uh, low volatility stocks underperforming the market, having a, a larger max drawdown. it. so, I think it's important to understand what you're buying and if you're looking for a risk management tool heading the 2020 election, know what you're buying. But also if you want to position yourself for emerging trends that might result from uh, either candidate, there are ETFs to provide that exposure. And so I think uh, the growth of ETFs is, will only accelerate. I don't think uh, either candidate is going to
1: derail that in any way, shape, or form.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. Sumit.
1: Yeah, I mean um – When we talk about the election, obviously, everyone's going to have their own opinion just in terms of the outcome and then also have their own opinion in terms of how that outcome is going to affect the markets. So you kind of stray into this area of speculation. But Mm -hmm. I think the two scenarios that people are most talking about are this blue wave where the Democrats capture the Senate, House and presidency. Then you have uh, the other outcome, which could be a split government where the Republicans uh, hold on to the Senate and or the presidency. So if we have that blue wave scenario, you're probably gonna see, and most people agree with this, you're gonna see the Democrats pass a lot of different bills and and those include um, bills for higher taxes on capital gains, higher taxes on um, corporate profits, things like that. But at the same time, you're gonna see these big spending bills, things like coronavirus relief measures, green energy and infrastructure, uh, and even more healthcare legislation which could offer insurance to more American citizens. So, all else equal, big spending like this is usually at least a short term positive for the markets. Uh, so, you might see a bid for the market from that. And in particular, you could see some interest in clean energy stocks, like Ram mentioned, uh, and also healthcare and infrastructure ETFs and things like that. The other scenario I just mentioned, which is the split government scenario that is gonna result in gridlock just like we've had for the last two years. Usually the market does like gridlock, but one thing to uh, keep in mind is that in that scenario, tensions between uh, China and the U.S. could stay high, especially if President Trump uh, is still um, in power. Um, So you might see some pressure on the China ETFs if if we got that scenario.
0: It's it's a perfect situation where however you think Things are going to lean come January inauguration. That's how you can play that whole theme. So speaking of January in 2021, let's close out with Samit, then Graham. Uh, What do you expect to see from the ETF space in 2021 and beyond? And you can kind of include like your closing thoughts and arguments in with this.
1: Yeah, so in 2021, I'd definitely expect to see more active ETFs come to market. So this year was a big year in that we got several new active ETF structures approved by the SEC, which allowed managers to put their strategies in the ETF wrapper without disclosing their holdings every day. So essentially, this allows active managers to hide their secret sauce from the rest of the market. And this is likely going to push a lot of fund managers who don't want to reveal their holdings into the industry. And that could be big for ETFs. We're going to see even more assets probably flow from mutual funds into ETFs because of this. And as many people are aware, ETFs have been historically dominated by index strategies Mm -hmm. right now. Over 80% of ETFs on the market are index based products. So having active joining the party could lead to a shakeup in terms of the mix of funds available to investors. There could be a more even split between index products and mutual fund products out there. Now, it remains to be seen whether investors are going to embrace these active funds. The academic research is pretty clear that active managers as a whole tend to underperform broad indices over time, but a small fraction of active managers do consistently outperform. The question is, can an investor identify those managers? That's really, really hard to do, especially without the benefit of hindsight. So we will see more active products on the market. It just remains to be seen whether investors are going to actually put their money in them.
0: Yeah, I feel like it might even, like, not a transition year, but it will take some kind of, like, a transition phase.
1: Definitely.
2: Yeah, I think, um, it, to me, is, is spot on. We're We're going to see... More products being brought to market. Uh, the barriers to entry have never been uh, lower in the ETF space, but uh, I would definitely argue that the, the barriers to success have never been higher. Um, and there's just so much competition. Uh, the if you think about the wirehouses and, and home offices that approve these products, uh, there's there's risk in them approving new products and putting them on their platforms and making them available to their advisors. And, and because of that, it's the ability to gain access to distribution channels um, is more challenging than ever. But I agree with Sumit. I think you're gonna to continue to see uh, a lot of these active management shops try to play catch up. Mm-hmm. They have resisted the ETF vehicle for a long time but realized they can't really do that anymore. But I'll play a more of a skeptical role in uh, what they're providing uh, the end investor. In most ways, I would argue the product proliferation that you'll see from active managers, whether it's uh, transparent active or or non-transparent active, at the end of the day, I don't see the benefit that that will provide an end investor. I think it's a solution for a mutual fund company, but not a solution for the advisor and their end client. Mostly because, as Sumi pointed out, it is very hard to outperform the market. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And and being able to to select a manager that has outperformed and will continue to outperform is also very very challenging. And so if that's uh, if we if we know that's true, then it doesn't really matter if you're showing showing your holdings or you're not, because in mutual funds uh, there isn't that same level of transparency that you have with ETFs, but they still were not able to outperform. So I'm very skeptical on on the advisor traction in this because I don't think it solves a problem. And the most successful ETFs have always been solutions for, for advisors and their clients. Uh, and I think these are a solution that are trying to find a problem that's really a mutual fund company problem and not an advisor problem.
0: Interesting, some differentiating viewpoints there and you know there's only one way to find out is i have to have you guys on a year from now and say tell me what happened
2: yeah i would love to be here
0: yeah that's um that's great well i'm i'm ready to wrap up uh Graham day vice president of product and research for innovator etfs samit roy etf analyst for etf.com thanks again guys for coming on it was a great chat i've learned a ton you know i've been writing for Schaefer's for three years and and we cover ETFs pretty extensively. And I feel like I can now write a little better. So at least from from my standpoint, thank you. And I'm sure my listeners learned something as well. Thanks again, guys. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much, Patrick. Take care.